Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Let's turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Let's have our Bibles turn there. Swipe there, click there, whatever device you have. Once again, we will bow our hearts before the Lord and pray and continue our worship of him. So, Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We do thank you once again for your presence. We pray for understanding. We pray for fresh insight. We pray for a fresh filling of your spirit, Lord. We pray for wisdom and discernment. And I pray, Father, that you'll continue to produce change in our lives. And, Father, the fruit of the spirit, we pray, will be evident in our lives this week. And I pray for the gift of teaching, for the ability to rightly divide your word of truth. And, Lord God, may... I decrease and you increase at this time. And may you be glorified in every room and building on this campus where ministry is taking place. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 So I'd like to thank Pastor Tony for for filling in last week. Um, That was, you know, actually planned, but getting sick wasn't planned. So it all worked out. So I just had a cold, praise God. Not all sickness is unto death, but I just want to thank Pastor Tony and just thank you all for your prayers and just pressing through um, each and every Wednesday and Sunday when you don't feel like it, you press through and you come out and you serve the Lord anyway. And so um, I'm I'm sure the Lord um, appreciates that. And so tonight, um, again, if you have your Bibles, um, if you missed it, we are uh, in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. That's where our study is going to come from, and the title of the message tonight is, Are You Salty? Are You Salty? Now, Jesus, if you remember in our last couple lessons, he had just taken Peter, James, and John up on this high mountain, and then he was transfigured or changed before them. And so he, this change came from the inside out, and what they got was a preview of the king. They got a preview of King Jesus in his glory and how he would be in his kingdom when he literally and visibly comes back to this earth and reign and we along with him will help him. But on that mountain of transfiguration, the scriptures told us that Elijah and Moses were there talking with Jesus. And after that incident, Jesus told the three guys, Peter, James, and John, to not tell anyone what they had seen until he was resurrected. Then, of course, the Bible tells us that when they came down from that high mountain, there was some trouble there. There was a man in the crowd who was disheartened that Jesus' other nine disciples could not cast this demon from, their, from his son. 
However, we find out that Jesus was able to cast this demon out. He was able to do what those other nine disciples were not able to do. And oftentimes we find that that is the case in our lives. That Jesus is able to do things that we are not able to do. But our study, of course, in this gospel, when this gospel of Mark in, in chapter 9, will pick up in verse 30. And in verse 30, it says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them that the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And it says, after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So recently, right after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus had told his disciples that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be killed, and he's going to rise again after three days. And that was back in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. But as you see here in Mark 9, 31, he, he told them again that he's going to be killed and rise on the third day. And the Bible tells us in our lesson tonight that they didn't understand that and they were afraid to ask him. And it brings to mind the point that sometimes we're that way. That we're afraid to ask the Lord things we don't understand. And when we do that, we, we miss out on some blessings. We miss out on some things that God would love for us to, to know, to have revealed to us because we fail to truly seek him by spending time in prayer, by spending time in the word of God, by spending time doing some research. And so we miss out just like these disciples did, being afraid to ask him. And then we pick up in verse 33, and it says here, then he came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. He asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But these men kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, Luke 9, 47 also adds little more information. It, it tells us that Jesus had already perceived the thought of their heart. And he's able to do that because, again, he is fully God. And yes, fully man. But in his divine nature, he's able to see what was in their hearts. And these men didn't answer what they were arguing about because they were embarrassed about the topic of the argument because they, they knew that Jesus wouldn't have approved of it. They knew that. So, yes, they were embarrassed. And what that argument revealed was the pride that was hidden in their hearts. Now, I wonder tonight that if the Lord would ask us what we argue about, if the Lord would ask us what we talk about, 
on the job site or on break time or what we argue about in our homes. If the Lord would ask us about those things, I would imagine that we too would be embarrassed to tell him. I wonder if that's the case with many of us, if we've been arguing about some things because of our pride. Because we don't want to admit that we're wrong. Because we think of ourselves higher than we ought to think. I wonder if that's the case for us if we get into many arguments because of that prideful attitude. But if we would be embarrassed to tell Jesus, if he were standing right next to us, what we were talking about, what we were arguing about, what we are tweeting about, what we are posting on Facebook, if we would be ashamed or embarrassed about that, then we shouldn't say it. Then we shouldn't type it. We shouldn't post it. We shouldn't text it. And here's the thing about the scenario I just brought up about us being embarrassed. If Jesus were standing here right next to us, the the thing I want to point out is, guess what? He already knows. He already sees. And so we need to keep that in mind before we text something, before we begin to argue about something due to pride, due to thinking of ourselves higher than we ought to think. I think last time I called pride, self-esteem on steroids. So I wonder how many arguments we've gotten into because of that. And yes, he already knows what's in our hearts and why that argument took place in the first place. But in verse 35, it says that Jesus sat down. He, he took the place or the position of a teacher. That's what the teachers did. They sat. And so he sat down and he called these 12 men, these 12 disciples or followers to him. And he said to them, if anyone desires to be first or the most important, then he shall be last of all and servant of all. He must move, in other words, to the bottom. And then Jesus took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to the disciples... And this is where we pick up in in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. He said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, that means to turn oneself from one's course of conduct or to change one's mind. So unless you are converted, unless you turn and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then back in in Mark 9, verse 37, he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name, that is on my behalf or as my representative, guess what? You receive me. And whoever receives me, you receive not me or not only me, but him who sent me, that is God the Father. And then Luke 9, 48 adds, For he who is least among you all will be great. He who is least among you all will be great. And this topic of greatness, by the way, I'm going to say for a, a later study. 
Because in chapter 10 of the gospel according to Mark, this is going to come up again. And so I'll save that talk about greatness until chapter 10. But what I want to do is focus more on why Jesus used the child to to teach them the attitude of humility. In other words, having a modest opinion of oneself. So in other words, you're not thinking too highly or too lowly of yourself. It's a modest view, the, the right view, the real view of yourself. So why did he use a child? That's because, number one, children know that they need their parents' help. You know, most children know that. They need help with food and cooking and clothes and things like that. Some need help with, with homework. Remember, my boys, they needed help with homework. My children needed help with homework just for a little bit of time. You know, both of my boys are really good at math, so probably when they got into sixth grade, they didn't need my help anymore. I wasn't that great at math anyway, so I was happy about that. I was an English major. But some children know they, that they need it or need their parents' help. And like these children, we must humble ourselves to depend on God, our Heavenly Father. Humble ourselves, lower ourselves, and know that we need to rely on him and actually rely on him. But also another thing I want to point out about children is that they have a healthy fear or reverence or respect for their parents. And in that same way, we should revere God. Another reason I think he used a child is that children trust their parents to care for them and They take their parents at their word, and I'm speaking in general, most of the time. And in that same way, just as a literal child, we should trust God. We should trust our Heavenly Father to care for us. We should trust Him and take Him at His word when it comes to salvation. We should take Him at His word when He says that He is our provider, right? Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. He's going to provide everything we need. Just first seek him, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says that all these things, everything we need, clothing, food, whatever the case may be, will be added unto us. And like these children, we have to trust God, depend on him, salvation for everything else. But on the other hand, just to get back to pride, we see what the scriptures say. And, and it comes in, in a proverb. In Proverbs 13, verse 10, it says, By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. And I like how this is put in the New Living Translation. It is said that pride leads to conflict. And those who take advice... Are wise. Now, I would imagine it's talking about godly advice, not just any old person's advice. But yes, that pride leads to conflict. Pride comes to nothing but strife. And not only will we have conflict with people, as you see the disciples had, arguing over who is the greatest. You know, they know that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter, James, and John just saw the king. They got a preview of the king in his glory. So you can imagine that, that arguing that was taking place. 
Well, I'm going to be sitting at his right hand. No, I'm going to be sitting at his right hand. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And so that pride brings conflict with people, but also, guess what? Pride brings conflict with God. God himself, because we don't want God's way. We want our own way. We don't want God's way of living. We want our own way of living. We don't want to think the way God thinks. We we want to think our own way. And so that pride leads to conflict with people and with God. In verse 38 in Mark 9, it says, Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. They were using your authority, Lord, to cast out demons. And John probably thought he did something well. He said that we forbade him. We told him to stop, in other words, because he does not follow us. But Jesus says, do not forbid him. Don't tell him to stop doing that. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. And so as believers, we need to be careful with setting up cliques. We need to be careful with setting up sects and denominations and things like that in the body of Christ. Because sometimes we can become so exclusive because someone does not worship or have the same order of service that we have. Or somebody doesn't, somebody others, someone else's church doesn't dress the way that we dress. Or they dress in tennis shoes and jeans and t-shirt and we, we wear shirts and ties. We wear slacks and dress shoes or we play faster music, we, but we over here play slower music. We play hymnals, and we have people in the parking lot directing traffic, and you don't. You must be doing something wrong. Or you have a, a dove back there on your wall, and we don't have anything on our wall, so we can't worship with those people because of that dove. And so sometimes we could become so exclusive. They're from Calvary Chapel. And we're not. We can't worship with them. They must not be on our side. Some people would think they don't preach the way we preach. They don't teach the way we teach. But we need to be careful as Christians not to be exclusive of other true, true believers. The question we should be asking is, do they believe, first of all, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God? Do they believe that? Do they believe the essentials of the Christian faith? And what do I mean by the essentials of the faith? That means that if you were to take that out, that if they didn't believe in that, then it would no longer be Christianity. If they don't believe in the virgin conception of Christ, for example, then that's not biblical. If they believe that Jesus sinned like everyone else, then that's not biblical. See, an essential of the faith is that That we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. We need to be asking if they believe in the God of the Bible, the way he presents himself. Do they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? Do they believe, again, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone? Those are the questions we should be asking Not focusing on whether or not they have instruments or not. 
on the worship team. We shouldn't be exclusive when it comes to true believers, but do we agree on the essentials of the faith? So if they're calling on the biblical Jesus, if they believe in the essentials of the faith, if they believe that that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that there was a virgin conception, that Mary was indeed a virgin and that he wasn't conceived by another man. Well, if they believe that he has two natures, fully God and fully man, if they believe in the triunity of God, Yes, they're, they're, they're true believers. If they truly put their faith in Christ. And just to clarify, just in case I said it the wrong way. When people believe the wrong things of those essentials of the faith, as I mentioned, if they believe the wrong things about Jesus, just getting back to that point. If they don't believe it the way God wants us to, then You know, that's not biblical Christianity. Now, some people may be true believers and just don't have an understanding of it, but that's why we need to go to the the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. It's something Pastor Jim always tells us. You're going to get proper theology from the Bible. And think about the Bible as every topic about everything that's God It's not laid out in order. And so some people take classes called systematic theology because everything is in order. It goes over everything in order. Salvation. You know, you're talking about the doctrine of man, the the doctrine of the church. Everything is in order. You don't have to do all the sweeping through the scriptures. I mean, obviously, you're going to look at scriptures, but you don't have to find it on your own in those systematic theology classes. But not everybody has time to go through those classes. And so we encourage you to read through the Bible and maybe use some type of system like highlighting. Highlight everything about God's character in green. Maybe highlight everything about sin in red or something like that. But read the scriptures. Take notes. So are these people, are these people calling on the biblical Jesus? Do they believe in the essentials of the faith? Don't be exclusive. Jesus says, for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, it continues in Mark 9, 41. Because you belong to Christ, assuredly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So if a person is acting as a representative of Christ, or if they're acting in Christ's authority and doing something nice, that is something nice for another believer, then guess what? They're doing it to Christ. That just shows the unity that Jesus has with his people, with the believers. And if they receive whoever Jesus will receive in Jesus' name, for example, like little children who put their faith in Christ and they're, they're receiving Jesus. 
If they receive someone like that man who was casting out demons in his name. Because that person is aligned with Jesus. Then that's like receiving Christ. In the sense that they are aligned with Christ. Not that that person is literally Christ. So a person who's truly on Jesus' side. A person who is truly a believer and blesses a child of God. The scriptures tell us that they will be rewarded. Just like it says in Galatians 6 verses 9 and 10, it says that, it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due seasons we shall reap if we do not lose heart, if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. And notice that it says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So don't grow weary in doing good. Continue to be a blessing to people. Continue to be a blessing to those who are a part of the household of faith, the body of Christ, the family of God. Because in a certain season, you're going to reap. And verse 42, as we continue... In Mark 9, it says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to sin or lose faith, it says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And then if you want to write this down in, in Matthew eighteen seven, or if you have time to turn to it, Jesus says, woe. Woe to the world because of offenses, because of stumbling or being a stumbling block or an occasion for stumbling. He says, for offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And so who are these little ones? These little ones could be literal children or they could be believers who are new to the faith. And so the scriptures tell us, Jesus tells us that if a person would have caused a little one, somebody young in the faith or a child to stumble or to fall into sin, that it will be better that a millstone were hung around that person's neck and they were thrown into the sea. It will be better. That means that something is worse than that. The millstone, by the way, was, this, was a stone that was used for grinding grain into flour. And so by Jesus using a millstone in this statement, he's talking about something heavy. It represents something heavy. So there, there's no way a person who has that around their neck can float back up to the top of the water and swim. They're going to drown. And so that's better. That's better than what's going to come ahead for those who don't receive Christ. That is better than going to hell. And so as we read this statement, parents, we need to beware. Teachers and educators, we need to beware. Politicians, beware about influencing one of God's children. To stumble into sin or to lose faith. Beware because being drowned by a heavy millstone. That was be- that's better for them. That- that's a torturous, horrible way to die. I can't imagine drowning. I remember 
I remember just having dreams of not being able to breathe. Dreams of drowning and, or running where I can't breathe. And then I wake up to only find my face stuffed in the pillow. So I can't imagine this, you know, dying this way. In verse 43, it says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm or their maggots does not die and the fire is not quenched. So quote from Isaiah 66, 24, and it says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm does not die. That is the worm, the maggots that feeds on the dead. And the fire is not quenched. Now, if you do a study of that Greek word behind the word hell that Jesus uses, it uses the word Gehenna. And so once again, Gehenna is the Greek form of the Hebrew Gehenom. And it means the valley of the son of Hinnom. And this literal place, Gehenna, was a valley that was outside of Jerusalem. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that it was the place of the idolatrous uh, worship of Molech. Because people would, they would sacrifice their babies to Molech. In this valley of the son of Hinnom. And for this reason, the godly king Josiah... He put a stop to that. In fact, he polluted. He polluted that valley of Hinnom. Because of this sacrifice to this idol God. Because they were sacrificed. Once again, they're babies. And I tell you today, even people today are still sacrificing their, ba- their babies to Satan, to Molech, so to speak, through abortion. And so this godly king, Josiah, he polluted that valley. And he stopped that worship of Molech. You can check it out in 2 Kings 23. And so now this valley began to be used as a a, a burning trash heap. They would also throw dead animals there. And so this fire would keep burning throughout the day. And so with these flames, the smoke just burning throughout the day and the maggots being there on these, in the trash and on these dead animals, it, would, it is fitting that Jesus would use Gehenna, this valley, as a metaphorical name for a place of torment. That is a place of torment for the wicked. Because like this literal burning trash heap, where this fire always burned and where maggots were. You see that those maggots represented that internal pain. Then, of course, the fire represents the, the outward pain that, that will last for eternity. So this is eternal judgment in Gehenna, this valley. It gave a good visual picture 
of what we see in Revelation as the lake of fire. And in this lake of fire, the the scriptures tell us that it is the second death. And people who who take part in the first resurrection, true believers who take part in that first resurrection will not go through that second death, will not be cast into the lake of fire. The scriptures tell us in Revelation that the Antichrist, the the false prophet, the devil, the, the demons, of course, and death and Hades, then all believers will find their final sentence in this lake of fire that Jesus called Gehenna. Again, that valley provided a perfect picture of what we see in Revelation chapter 20. And so death and Hades will be cast into there. Revelation tells us that the sea and stuff, they're going to give up the dead. And so we're going to see those bodies be reunited with those souls from Hades and Hades and death itself. And all those unbelievers cast into that lake, that fire that is not quenched. It's a real place. Jesus talked about it. And and by the way, it was not created for mankind. It was actually created for the devil and his angels. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 41. But anybody who rejects Christ is going to find themselves suffering that second death in that lake of fire in Gehenna. And so as I mentioned before, the people there will have a resurrected body. Not going to be glorious, but the people in Gehenna will have a resurrected body. Check it out. What it says in, in John 5, verses 28 and 29, it says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the res- resurrection of life. That's for those of us who've repented and received Jesus Christ. First resurrection, the resurrection of life. But then guess what? And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We see that taking place in Revelation 20. That's Gehenna. They'll be cast into that lake of fire. And so in this lake of fire, in this second death. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be pain. There's going to be isolation from the presence of God, from the relational presence of God. There's going to be outer darkness and intense heat. And people are going to be conscious. They're going to be aware. They're going to be aware of the fact that they missed an opportunity to receive Jesus. There's not going to be any soul sleep. And again, when, when does this take place? When do people receive their final sentence in the lake of fire? After the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment, by the way, happens after the millennial kingdom. And so you have the tribulation, you have the millennial kingdom, you have the great white throne judgment, and those who are unsaved will receive their final sentence in that lake of fire, death and Hades included, the second death. And then after that, then you have the eternal state, which you see in Revelation 21 and 22, that is the eternal state. Now, this scripture here, by the way, because some of you may be wondering, do I have to cut off my hand or my foot? I like my eye. No, we are not to literally cut off body parts to prevent ourselves from sinning, but we are to cut off the source of the temptation. Remember, the true problem is in the heart. The heart is deceitful, right? 
above all things and is desperately wicked. Who can know what the scriptures tell us? That's the real problem. And so he's not telling us to literally chop off our body parts to prevent ourselves from sin. But he's saying, again, cut off the source of that temptation that leads you into sin. And so when we see those statements that we, that in there in uh, verses 43 and 48, it just shows us how serious sin is. It shows us how serious hell is. It shows us the drastic measures we must be willing to take in order to stop sinning. And it shows us that being in God's presence for eternity is worth giving up all those other things that we would enjoy. So living a life that pleases your flesh, in other words, is it's not worth missing out on as far as missing out on an eternity with God. This world, the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of the flesh, it's not worth eternity with God. Then it continues in verse 49. For everyone will be seasoned. Everybody will be tested with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And I I can just picture us being a living sacrifice as it tells us to be in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Yes, we are a living sacrifice. And so this verse could mean that as a living sacrifice for God, that yes, we're going to be tried with fire. We see that in 1 Peter 4. And God will use that fire to purify us. He's going to use that testing, those tribulations and things like that in this world to to purify us. But also as living sacrifices to him will be seasoned with salt. The scriptures tell us in Leviticus 2.13, for example, that the offerings, the sacrifices were to be seasoned with salt. And that salt could speak of both our purity and it could also speak of our preservation of God preserves us. In verse 50, it says that salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor or purpose, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. And so with that being said, I just have a question to ask. And the question is, are you salty? You see, salty, when used as a slang term, it could be used to describe someone who's angry, who's agitated or upset. It could be used um, to describe someone who's mean or annoying or repulsive. So it could be used in that way, but we want to use it in a biblical context. Are you salty tonight? You see, salt in ancient times was used for different purposes. And most of the ways that salt was used was positive. And two of the common ways of using salt in ancient times were to be used as a preservative or, of course, as we use it today, as a seasoning. And so I want to ask tonight, do our words act to preserve and do our words act as a seasoning in this world? Or do we speak like the disciples spoke here, uh, words of division? Oh, they're not like us. So they're not exactly like us. They're not hanging with us. So we forbid them to hang out with us. We we forbid them to stop doing stuff in Jesus' name because they don't go to our church. Do we speak words of division or do we have words of preservation or seasoning like literal salt does for us? 
Or do we speak those words of pride like the disciples did when they argued about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Do we have those words of the big eyes and the little U's? See, Colossians 4, 6 tells us to let our speech always be with grace or kindness and let our speech be seasoned with, guess what, salt or attractiveness. Let our words be pleasant that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Or do we have those words of pride? Do we have those words of divisiveness? And how about our actions? Do our actions work as a preservative and seasoning and that they make people want to do better? Or do we cause instead people to stumble because of our lifestyle? We heard what Jesus had to say about people who cause people young in the faith or who cause children to stumble in sin or, or lose faith. See, part of the reason things are the way they are in this country, yes, there's a devil. Yes, we know that, yes, there's spiritual warfare, but part of the reason I believe things are the way they are in this country and world is because some who profess to be Christians have decreased in their saltiness. Are you salty? They become ineffective in their witness, in other words. They may for a time stand up for biblical matters, but, but after a time they begin to lose that saltiness. They would rather side with their skin color. They would rather side with their family, even if they're in sin, even if their beliefs are not biblical. They would rather side with the political party than with God, losing the saltiness. See, a good way, as the worship team comes to the stage, a good way to give an uh, uh, overall picture of where we are and our saltiness, we need to ask ourselves, do we bring a different element to this world? Or when we are added to the mix, do things stay bland? Do things taste a little different when we're added to our workplace? Do things go a little different and taste a little different when we're added to our community? Or are they still bland? Are they still evil? Do we fit right in, in other words? And so to get that overall picture of where we are, ask ourselves that question, do we bring the, the flavor to this world? Or do we go with the flow? In Matthew five thirteen, Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Keep that in your minds. You are the salt of the earth. I like what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. Again, we get into some futuristic stuff, things that haven't taken place yet, some prophecy. It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Read Revelation 19. And so what you see here in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8, is that the Holy Spirit, who is in the church, is restraining evil from um, coming all the way forth like it could. And so all evil... It's not breaking loose yet because of the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. 
that is in believers. And so this is why, again, I don't believe we'll see the Antichrist because it says that when we're taken out of the way, that restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, which means the rapture, then the lawless one, then the Antichrist will be revealed. And when will the tribulation start? The tribulation will start, as it says in Daniel chapter 9, when he makes that covenant or confirms the covenant with the people of Israel. That won't take place yet. We have to be moved out of the way. But guess what? This is the point I want to make is that the Holy Spirit in us uses us to be the salt of the earth. He uses us to be the salt of the earth. And so what I want to just put out there tonight, and I want you, if you don't remember anything else to take with you, is to be what God called you to be. And for Darrell to be what God called him to be. You see, when I became an, an athlete, when I ran track, and guess what I did? I, I, I acted like an athlete. I stopped drinking soda during track season. I did my push-ups even when nobody was looking. I did the extra work when I thought the other people were, weren't working. And I ran the you know, 400, uh, 4 by one 200, 4 by 4 relays. And so I did those things. I didn't win every single race. But I signed up to be an athlete, and I acted like one. I went to practice. I, I showed some type of discipline. Same thing when I became a husband. I stopped acting like the ladies' man and acted like a husband. I became a father. I started acting like a father. And so if, if God calls us, if Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, that means we need to start acting like what he called us, acting like what we are. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your Holy Spirit in us who enables us to be the salt who enables us to live a, a pure life, who enables us to show the character of Jesus in, in our thoughts, words, and actions. And Lord, help us until you come get us. Help us to be faithful in living out what you said we are. Lord, if you say that, that we are the salt of the earth, help us to be that. If you say that we are your children, help us to live that way. You say, Lord, that we are forgiven, help us to live that way. You say, Lord, that we are justified and sanctified. Father, help us to live that way. Father God, you say that, that we are free. Help us to live that way. Help us to live the way you, you called us, Lord. Help our lifestyle to match our identity. I pray for anyone tonight, Lord, who's lost their saltiness, whether in this room or listening to a recording or watching a video right now 
Lord, draw them to that place of repentance, to that place of surrender, that they would get back that flavor, Father. And for anyone who's not a believer, I pray, Father, that you would draw them to Jesus tonight. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody needs prayer, please feel free to come to the front. We'll be more than happy to pray with you, pray for you. I'd just like to thank you for coming out and just pray that you have a blessed week and that God would use you in a mighty way. Go out and be that salt in your community. Go out and be that salt in your family. When they invite you to Thanksgiving, that's coming up. Be that salt. You go to a child's birthday party or somebody's birthday party, they're drinking, you be that salt. And as always, we love you. May God keep you. And if you're able to stand, please stand as we just lift up our voices and continue to worship our Lord. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church and how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.